Welcome to the Tightly Coupled Book Club. I'm Mina, joined by my flashier half, Aji. Hey there, cats and kittens. We just got back from RailsConf. Aji, how did your talk go? It went really, really well. I had a lot of examples that I wanted to cram in and spent the few nights leading up to it trying to decide which ones would go in and which ones I could cut out uh, for the time that I had. And I felt like it wasn't maybe going to be the best because I knew all the examples that I wanted to go in and anything short of all the examples was not sufficient. But I think it really it went off pretty well. And a lot of people had questions and follow up. I had some conversations afterwards that so the people were really paying attention. They got something out of it. So I'm really pleased. How was the conference for you? It's really great. I always love going to these conferences because I get to see my conference friends, people like Hillary and Brittany Martin from the Ruby on Rails podcast and Drew Bragg from... Code and the Coding Coders Who Code It. Thank you. I will not butcher that again. One of the highlights from this Atlanta conference is that I am an organizer with Ruby Central for their conferences for their scholarship program, where the intention is to lower the barrier to entry to these tech conferences in terms of cost and accessibility to newer Rubyists or Rails developers, people who come from non-traditional backgrounds. And this time around, I think it was my maybe third or fourth round working with the committee. And this is the first time I had seen former scholars that I had selected from early conferences come back as guides or mentors. So that pipeline is really, really cool to see. Neat. Yeah. Now you mentioned uh, Ruby Central in there for people that don't know who or what is Ruby Central. Well, Ruby Central is the nonprofit group that organizes these conferences. So every year they run RailsConf and RubyConf, and they are also the organization that upkeeps and supports rubygems.org, the website where all of your gems are downloaded from. They took the conference as an opportunity to speak a little bit about their membership program, which uh, I didn't know was there. Mentioned that they are starting up a new members-only Discord. We have joined the membership program since then, and if anyone out there is interested in joining a group of dedicated Rubyists and supporting this organization that is vital to our favorite programming language, you can go to rubycentral.org, and that'll also be in the show notes for this episode here. I think a lot of times that when we are asked to contribute financially to an organization or something like a Kickstarter, for example, it's really tempting to, people tend to think, well, what's in it for me? And I'm going to go ahead and borrow Brandon Weaver's response to something like this. He said that, I do not agree with the perspective that it's not about what's in it for us. It's about what's in it for the community. And that happens to be a large focus of what Ruby Central wants to do next. So some of that is to take these financial contributions and give back in the form of supporting local conferences and local meetups and making these Ruby and Rails focused events more accessible to everyone. And another thing too, because it's, we all use open source software and I think most of us have the desire or the intention to give back to open source in some way. Maybe that will be contributing to a project or that kind of involvement, but that can be really difficult if you don't have the, the time to, to do that. And this is a way that you can kind of throw money at the problem. If you have some of that extra, but you don't have time or bandwidth extra to contribute, you can take advantage of this opportunity and give back to open source in this way too. All right, we're here to talk about the Rails Guides. Shall we get to it? For this episode, we read Getting Started with Rails in the Ruby on Rails Guides, chapters 8 through 13, from adding a second model all the way to the end. 
Aji, did you learn anything that's surprising to you? Yeah, at the very end, they mentioned some configuration gotchas about UTF-8 and said that some editors might not use UTF-8 by default and mentioned Dreamweaver. I didn't know that was still a thing. <laughs> Do you think that's just part of the guides that had existed from the very beginning? They just never replaced? It's possible. It might just be that I haven't paid attention to it. So Dreamweaver is like a WYSIWYG uh, website editor. And I guess I just haven't thought about it for so long since A, I've known how to do this now and things like Squarespace exist. But Adobe makes a lot of tools and I'm sure that Dreamweaver is probably still kicking around out there. What's a WYSIWYG? Yeah, WYSIWYG is an acronym that stands for what you see is what you get. And it has an interface that lets you drag and drop images, type text, and the way that it looks on the screen is more or less the way that it's going to be in the finished product. I've never actually used it, but is it kind of like Squarespace? Yeah, something like that. Obviously, I haven't used it in a very long time, but yeah, it's fairly similar. I think you can do a little bit more from scratch with Dreamweaver, whereas Squarespace has a lot more kind of templates and sort of assisting you through the process. But yeah. Uh, Squarespace is not a sponsor, but maybe sponsor us? <laughs> Sponsors every other podcast, why not, right? <laughs> Maybe a little less facetiously, something that surprised me is rendering a collection. At one point, they call the render method and pass a collection as opposed to a single model. And I either had forgotten or was never aware that you could pass a collection and it would loop over that collection and render the the partial related to that model or you know whatever you've passed in. Yeah, I made a note about that part too. Uh, it's in what is it, chapter nine about refactory, where originally they had looped through all of the article's comments and displayed the commenter and the body of each one of those comments right from the article show template. And they had refactored out the the HTML elements of commenter and body into its own partial. And in the place of the original code, it just says render at article.comments. And I kept going back and forth between the two code examples. It was like, wait, where did the loop go? I was like, I lost the loop. Where did it go? And all I had to do is just keep reading the following paragraph talked about that the render method can take a collection or list and iterate through and is smart enough to just pull those and render a partial for each of the elements in the list. That phrase actually came up a couple of times in these sections, the like Rails is smart enough to phrase. And that kind of stood out to me, especially with all of the different conversations that we've had around Rails magic and that kind of thing. Did you have any kind of reaction to that when you saw those phrases? I did. One of them I am still a little bit... Cheesed off about? No. <laughs> no, one of them I'm still a little bit like hazy about. Uh, it was the one where they had put in the form, the new form for the comment where you can add a new comment from the article show template. It had a form with called with an array of nested routes for like a nested models where it had an array. The first element is at article. The second one is at article dot comments dot build. And apparently that Rails puts that together and returns a path that is slash article slash article ID slash comments. I don't know how we got from one to the other. From which to which? From how we arrive from that array has to ask the model to the form with method how that Rails just knows that this is the path that your form wants to make a request to. 
Yeah, I don't know the exact implementation of it, but I know that having dealt with some nested routes pretty recently, I just kind of know that as the syntax that you need. If your route is going to have more than one model involved, you can pass an array, and based on the ordering, Rails will you know figure out where it needs to be nested, in which order, and sets it all up for you. Yeah, that one I am feeling very, I don't know, confused by? I think another way that it is maybe a little confusing is that because in this example, comments isn't editable, there's just a new comments. And so normally you wouldn't see in the form partial something like articles.comments.build because you would be reusing that form partial for both the new and the edit action. And you'd actually be passing in that comment uh, as opposed to building it right there in the, the view partial. So that might be another thing that's kind of throwing you off from what you might usually see. So if I'm understanding correctly, the form with an array for models is you pass in an instance of one model and then an instance of another model and the route gets kind of those two things spliced together. Yeah, my assumption is that it's based on the model name. And uh, because like resources, model name knows how to create a path out of the model that it's working with, it's doing a similar sort of thing with the instance that you've passed in. So it can look at what class that instance is and kind of relate it back that way. Uh, You mentioned this other thing, nested routes. So when in this example from the, I guess, tutorial, we have comments who are related to, like associated to articles, and they had nested comments inside the articles in the, the comments resource inside the articles resource, right? And I have been kind of away from like RESTful Rails routes for a long time after working with GraphQL Rails APIs, where there's one route, right? Like one endpoint, one controller. As I understand it, obviously, like not all associations are nested, right? That would cause chaos. So I think you said that you had been dealing with some nested routes recently. So I would love to hear your thinking on that, your mental model on nested routes or like strategies for deciding when to nest them. Sure. I think it's really easy to fall into, and I say it's really easy because this is exactly how I started and it got hairy really fast. Um, It's very easy to fall into, well, if there's an association and I'm always kind of going through this other thing, then it's just always going to be nested. Like resources articles, you pass in the block for resources comments, that's going to make every single route from the comments be prefixed with the articles path structure. So you'd have article slash ID slash comment and then all of the different RESTful variations on that. But I think it was useful for me to think of it as only using the nested route when the reference to the parent is necessary to create the page that you're loading. So if you're editing a comment specifically and you don't need any of the information about the article, then you can have that outside of the the nested block if that's going to make things a little more straightforward for the way your application is structured. Uh, Because sometimes passing in that article is actually data that you might not necessarily have or need right in front of you when you're going to that new route. So I think teasing those apart whenever possible can help to simplify your routing structure. It seems thinking about it from a user interaction perspective is helpful in this case. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. If you are trying to get an index of comments, well, you probably want the index of comments of a particular article, and so that's nested. But if you're going to view or edit or update a single comment, that's not dependent on the ID of the article. You have the ID of the comment, and you can cut straight to the source. That's one of my favorite things about building software is the part that gets forgotten the most is that we're building software for humans and people are using these. So considering how these people are using the product that we build can actually really inform the implementation. So really, we should think about them more often. Agree, a hundred percent, and it can really help simplify things too a lot of the time. Because if you have the example of having you know extra nested resources when it's not actually the way that the user is viewing it, then it might feel programmatically correct. But if you're not thinking about how people are entering the application, what is the way that they're viewing? The information hierarchy and structure that you're building.、Uh, there might be ways to simplify that'll make your life easier, and it'll actually make it more straightforward to think about the user's path through the application. Love that. So, users being probably like one of the most important entities, somebody that we should think about. Something else, I think that like is also just as important as users. You could cut this if you want. Is data integrity. Too right, like I feel like both both of those things are like taken together should be what informs what and how we build things. It's really interesting to think of users and data integrity as these two kind of essential parts of building out an application because one is sort of trusting and looking at it from the user's point of view, and the other one is looking at it from the system's point of view and not trusting the user. Yeah, it's it's one it's two sides of the same coin. Something that stood out to me is that when when we added the second new model comments in chapter eight in the migration itself, it uses T dot references call to associate comments to articles. And in the guides, it says that using references does a few things for us. It creates a sort of model name underscore ID column, sets up foreign keys, things like that. But I have seen in past projects that functionally it will also work if we just do t dot integer and then a simple article underscore ID along with the belongs to and has many definitions in the article and comment models. So I was thinking about like why is it better to use References rather than kind of hand roll it ourselves. For me, especially, is is great because Rails will handle all of the different parts that go up into the T dot references, and if I don't use T dot references, I'm gonna forget one of those parts. Yeah, like I said, I had seen past projects that didn't have that, and I know that I've talked to other coworkers about the projects that they have seen these type of things in, and I know that one of them was telling me once that she had a tool that when you put in a schema file, it would generate a database diagram for you with all of the tables and. The columns are in those tables and draw lines between the tables where all of the relationships are. And she had used this for a little while. She rolled onto a new project, inherited some Rails code base, and was trying to visualize the data that is in this new project. So she took the schema file from that project and put it into this tool. And because they didn't set up any of the the sort of like foreign keys, so they basically they didn't use references. And so the the diagram that spat out had all the tables, all the 
the columns in these tables and no lines between any of the tables. Oh, wow. Because the schema didn't know anything about the foreign key relationships. Everything was set up at the model level. So like the application functionally works when you call dot associations, but the database layer didn't enforce any of it. It hurt my heart a little bit. I think that's something that gets uh, kicked around a lot is the idea of pushing constraints and controls down to the database layer uh, as much as possible and doubling up on the application layer or just making sure that the database takes care of that because that's what the database is good at. Is that sort of what you're, you're getting at here? I'm usually a proponent of doubling it up because like, for example, if you have a presence validation at the model level, you should always give your database like a null-false constraint as well. I think that way, if somebody is for some reason hitting your database directly, bypassing the model validations, the database can also enforce those validations. And the other thing is these constraints at the database level is documented in the schema file, yes, but I think it's a little harder to tease out and read. So having it at the model level makes it a little easier to understand for people. Yeah, and you're usually working in the model files anyway. You're not working in the schemas. So if you see it there in the model, um, it's going to be more front of mind. There's also, too, the situation where someone might need to skip validation for some reason. And that's probably for a reason other than something that the database is going to require for like referential integrity or something like that. And so you want those most important things to be held at the database layer too. But another thing that was introduced in this part of the guides are concerns. And one of the examples that they had was taking a validation outside of a model into a concern because it will be used across different models, like anything that has this, in this example, status, will have the same validation to validate that the status is in a certain set of values. And I actually had a little bit of a reaction to that. I thought that is taking away from the benefit that we were just talking about of having the validations listed up at the top of the model file, that it might be running this validation and you aren't immediately aware of it without having to open up these other files where the concerns are living. Do you have any thoughts about that kind of trade-off? I have no problems in this particular case, the sort of testing equivalent in RSpec is shared examples, right? Those I don't like. In most cases, I don't like. But I think that this particular example where it removed the validation for status for both comment and article models into a concern is okay with me because in order to use a concern, you have to very clearly include it at the top of your model file. So I think that it very clearly points to some, like, this is where some extra code about this model is living. So I don't think that would make it hard to find. I agree that I don't really have a problem with doing that. It just um, just made me aware of that trade-off and brought into focus one of the things that you're losing while you're gaining these other things from using a concern. Certainly. But I also think that, especially in Ruby and Rails world, there's always some functionality that your model has that doesn't live directly right there in your model.rb file. So it's one of those things that maybe as a Rails developer, I expect. 
Again, it's trade-offs all the way down. Maybe the problem I had here is that this concern was called visible, and on the inside of the concern, there's not really anything that refers to visibility. It is a validation on a status. It is a predicate method of, is this status archived? And a constant that has the possible values of status. And so if I'm looking at this model file and I see that it's including this concern called visible, that really doesn't tell me anything that it is doing with status, right? And so maybe my reaction there is a little bit more that this name isn't as informative as I would hope. Even though that the status controls whether an article or a comment is displayed? But it doesn't in that concern, does it? Like that concern does nothing with visibility and the relationship to visibility and status is somewhere else. What would you have called it instead? I think it would reference something about status, like has status or, I don't know, something like that. I hadn't really thought of a better name. Naming things is hard. I don't know, maybe that's being pedantic, but that sort of fed into my feeling like the behavior introduced with this concern is actually kind of more hidden than it would normally have felt. Interesting. That concern being called visible, I wonder if that has been a conversation and if I should open a PR or an issue to discuss it. That was actually one of two things that I thought I should bring up in the official forum to to talk about. Um, So I'm going to look into those things and I will have some follow-up for the next time around. What was the other one? Well, I think before we get into that, I need to ask you a question. In the example here about deleting comments, the delete link starts to introduce some data attributes that include references to turbo. So we have data turbo method delete and data turbo confirm. Are you sure? I think they did this a little bit with articles too in the last uh, section that we read for the last episode. As someone that hasn't dealt with turbo a whole lot, Yeah, what did that look like to you? What was your um, interpretation of those? I saw the word turbo and I was just like, oh, this is probably related to Hotwire. Well, Audrey's going to tell me about Hotwire in a little bit. So I just not skipped over it, but I just kept reading and the guides in in the section where they use that kind of explained what each of those things were very briefly and what it meant in the interaction on the web page when you use it. And so I just read that and I was like, I don't need to know this too deeply and just went on. I moved on. Yeah, I think the guides do a really good job at that, actually. It says what that will do in this context and doesn't get too deep into what Turbo is or anything because that's not important for what we're doing at the moment. And that's kind of a that's kind of a railsy thing, right? Like, don't need to get too deep into this right now, but it'll help you get done what you need to get done. I also really liked how they obviously went back and updated these examples as new Rails features are rolled out and implemented because they probably didn't use data turbo method in the very first iteration of these guides. Yeah, seeing as Turbo didn't exist, sure. Uh, I guess it's a good time to point out that currently we are reading v7.0.4.2 Rails Guides. That was just for my own sort of curiosity, as you are often going to have this perspective, especially with a lot of these view layer parts of the Rails Guides, as coming into it as somebody who might be seeing all of these things for the first time. So you have experience with Rails, but you might not have experience with particular methods or uh, ways of solving a problem. And so I kind of think that that's pretty interesting and, and will want to tap into your responses to these things as they pop up, something that maybe I'm familiar with that you aren't. And I'm sure that you'll do the same to me. 
but rolling along to what my other potential PR or whatever is. This is in the portion of the example where we are deleting comments. And so each comment is shown with its author and content. And next to it is a delete link. So it is a Rails link to helper that has the text delete and these data turbo methods that will pop up an alert that says, are you sure? The one in question is data turbo method delete. This really kind of quickly gets us to the behavior that this part of the tutorial is trying to show, an interactive element that a user can click to delete a comment. And it works. But my question is, should it? Because link to with a data turbo method of delete makes an anchor tag. And an anchor tag sends a get request. But this is intercepted by Turbo and turned into a post request because the Rails backend understands delete routes are either delete methods or post requests with a body identifier saying that it's a delete method. And to me, this is breaking the semantics of an anchor tag. So from the MDN, anchor elements are often abused as fake buttons by setting their href to hashtag or JavaScript void zero. These bogus href values, that's a quote by the way, these bogus href values cause unexpected behavior when copying or dragging links, opening links in a new tab or window, bookmarking, or when JavaScript is loading errors or is disabled. They also convey incorrect semantics to assistive technologies like screen readers. Use a button tag instead. So if Turbo is about enhancing a site but staying as close as possible to the semantics of HTML, I think that this is an incorrect decision. If not just in Turbo completely, then at least in this guide, because this should not be the anointed way to do this. There should be a button to. What button to does is creates a tiny little form that submits, which then keeps the semantics of submitting a post request. Is button to an actual existing Rails helper? It is. So, okay, if, let me just rephrase and see if I understand what you're saying here. Please do. <laughs> you're saying that by using link to and passing it a data turbo method of delete, that is overriding the default behavior of an A tag that usually sends a get request and forcing it to send a get request instead. Oh, I'm sorry, a post request. That's right. What Turbo is doing, we're throwing Turbo in here without actually explaining any of this and what is happening to the person reading through this guide. It will intercept that behavior, read that data Turbo method attribute, and make a JavaScript-based Ajax request to the backend and turn it into a post with a post body of underscore method delete. And so it's completely changing the semantics of how this element works. And I think that that is even probably the wrong thing to do if you are completely aware of Turbo, but I think it's potentially misleading to someone whose first entrance to Rails is seeing link to with this Turbo method. And so now they're thinking that that is the way to do this appropriately in Rails. And if I saw someone have a link whose sole purpose was to send a delete request, if I saw that in a PR, I would ask them to change it. So I don't think that this should be the way that this concept is introduced to someone who is new to Rails. So you would change the example to a button too? 
Exactly. It is sort of seeding people with the kind of first or canonical way that they're introduced to sending a delete request is this link to with Turbo. And if you want your Turbo applications to fall back gracefully for people whose JavaScript is not enabled or for assistive devices that don't use JavaScript exactly the same way that a browser does, this just won't work. I wonder what this example looks like in a an earlier version of the guides before Turbo. So looking back to the 6.1 version of the guide, section 9, deleting comments, it actually is a link to with method delete. So I'm not sure the mechanism that's going on there, but I'm sure it's probably something the same because there is no HTML attribute that'll turn an anchor tag into a post request. And sidebar, you looked at the link to method and know that it generates an A tag instead of dynamically like turning, like when it has a different method, it turns it into something else. Yeah, my expectation when I saw that is, oh, it must be doing the same thing that button2 does and making a small form with a button that looks like a link. But surprisingly, I found when it renders it out, it's an anchor tag that JavaScript does everything for it. That's cool. I read a blog post about this. Can we quickly talk about the HTTP basic authenticate with? <gasps> Why does it exist? <laughs> I Yeah, I had some feelings about this, too, because it seems certainly not sufficient in this day and age. Not only that, it has a hard-coded password in the example. Yeah, and uh, that could be like a reference to an environment variable there rather than a string. It could be a reference to like rails.application.configuration, etc., etc., etc. That is true. You're right. I apologize. Yeah, I think what you're saying is... This should not be your complete security solution. Oh, no. But I do I do like for everything that this guide is doing, and it is introducing a lot of concepts, it did not have to bring up security. It really didn't. But I really liked that they put it in there, even if it's at this basic level, to get new users of Rails uh, having security on the mind right from the jump. So I think for that, it's pretty great that it's in there. My original original reaction and also clearly the reaction I just brought into into this session is that questioning like what would be the real life use case here for this and I think you're right that this is completely sufficient for introducing the idea of authentication in a quick getting started to use this getting started using this tools tutorial right it's completely sufficient for this particular use case getting new developers or new to rails developers on board with this idea of authenticating your application behaviors. So I would like to tone down that original, original outrage. Somehow you're like more level-headed than I am right now about things. Except for delete methods. Don't get me started on delete methods. I also like that it is not sort of very long, introduces basic authentication. It's like, you should think about security. And the second section under this chapter is other security consideration. It's just, there's more to it. And here is the section where we will cover it in depth. So I'm really excited to get to that section. Yeah, I had written that down too, that I'm really looking forward to that chapter. I think there's going to be some interesting things there and hopefully some some new things that I will learn because this is one of those topics that is always evolving and you have to be 
up on what the the latest and greatest is and you know be aware of where you should stop and hand it over to people that focus and concentrate on security i'm also looking forward to it because there will be a lot to highlight i'm sure that combats the notion of oh i don't need to think about it rails makes it secure from the default and i don't think that's as prevalent a thought as it was when I first started with Rails. I think because the Rails community kind of got wind that people were thinking that way and made it more front and center that, no, you actually should still be thinking about security. Rails gives you some defaults, but it doesn't do everything for you. That's something that needed to be kind of combated. And I think the the community has stepped up there really admirably. And I also think that kind of coming back to the idea that we before this podcast and before this exercise of reading it from start to finish, the way that I had used the guides is, you know, when I know that I need to look up some syntax or I know that Rails can do X, Y, Z, I just need to figure out how to do it exactly. The security chapter is probably not one that you would land in when you're using the documentations like that to look up specific methods or specific behavior or something specific that you want to do. So it's probably a chapter that not a lot of people would organically land on. And so it's going to be, I don't know, highlights sort of the reason we are doing this podcast and reading the whole thing. So if you were reading along with us and reading the whole thing, Mm -hmm. for the next episode, we're going to be reading the entirety of Active Record Basics in the Rails Guides. I'm super excited. Active Records is my favorite part of Rails. And if you have any feedback or constructive compliments, we can be reached on Twitter at underscore tightly coupled and on Mastodon at tightly coupled at ruby.social, or you can email us at tightlycoupled.dev at gmail.com. Show notes can be found in your podcast player or tightlycoupled.dev. See you next time. Bye. Do we need to clap again? Might be nice because mine's a new recording. Okay. Here we go. A one, two, <laughs> three. Can you hear that? Yep, I heard I hit, it. I hit my face on the way in. <laughs> <laughs> I, hit, I hit my face on the way in. And so, like, I was like, it's like. Okay, well, I found my, <laughs> I found the funny bed for no. the end. <laughs> Why are you the worst?